0: Today's podcast is brought to you by Elenco Animal Health and Kelly's Finance. Music Hello, I'm Kerry Lunigan. Welcome to The Weekly Grill. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with a bloke who looks after a whole lot of money provided by the beef and lamb producers of Australia. I'm referring to the levy collected by MLA... Let's now say hello to a man with a title, General Manager, Research and Development and Adoption at MLA. Michael Crowley, welcome. You're on the grill with Beef Central.
1: Thanks, Kerry. Thanks for having me.
0: How much? Uh, what so You've got a wonderful title, Research and Development and Adoption. How much money do you get from MLA to uh, cover those uh, areas, research and development in particular?
1: Yeah, thanks, Kerry. Uh, the, my portfolio covers the supply chain, so from genetics, all the way through to new product innovation. And it represents close to 50% of MLA's budget. It's, uh, it's about $130 million this financial year, investing in R&D and adoption across all aspects of that supply chain. There's
0: been some outstanding successes with MLA's R&D, or I would say MSA and NLIS for, for a couple. Any more you'd like to mention?
1: Oh, look, we're, we're seeing some big advancements in objective measurement technology. Uh, we're investing in productivity. Some of the productivity gains are, are pretty impressive across beef and sheep. Uh, commercialization of genomic technology and genetics and some of the shelf life outcomes have really improved some of our market access outcomes. Uh, the work we do in the live export space. There's, there's numerous examples across, um, across our production system and, and for the supply chain. So it's a, it's a really exciting space to be involved in.
0: Yeah, automation in the the processing area—that's been a disappointment, though, hasn't
1: it? Um, the small stock sector is really embracing it, Kerry. So yes, it's, yes. it's been right. quite a journey.
0: Yeah, but the the, the, the big cattle area is, uh, is still a struggle, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it is. It's more—it's quite complex, though. We're we're on the journey. We've got quite a large uh, beef boning automation program that we're really trying to. Uh, break the back of those barriers and, and the technology improves all the time. So some of the sensing technology, the dual energy X-ray um, technology and we're also investing in C T scanning. So as the sensing becomes more technology improves, it's allowing us to then handle what is a, a complex uh, issue we're trying to solve. And you know, just with the sheer size of and range of carcasses, Create some challenges, but we're um, we're well on the journey. So hopefully we can uh, we can uh, solve some of those some of those challenges. We've, we've certainly got some um, some simple technologies that assist boning. We've got some scribing machines that are that are in plants. Um, the the real challenge we're trying to solve is automated in the boning of the middle section where the where the value uh, where the big value cuts are. So. Yeah, it's, um, but those are the sorts of challenges we we're trying to tackle. Yeah, well,
0: the back end's pretty good, isn't it? But you've got to work on that front end, haven't you? Look, all, uh, we'll get to those again in a moment. Let's uh, check on your background from the land, and you went to very famous ag high school, Farrah in Tamworth. From there, you went to Armadale to do a Bachelor of Rural Science. Was that always your ambition?
1: Yeah, it was. Um, I, I guess growing up on a beef cattle property, I always loved the hands-on work on farm, and been every weekend and holidays and still spend a lot of time um, doing the stock work there. So going away to school it sort of broadened my horizons and um, whilst I was at university I also was part of the meat judging program and and had a 15-year association with the intercollegiate meat judging which really opened up many doors for me and created a lot of contacts in the meat industry. So um, yeah it's really a combination of I guess education and networks, and um, and taking opportunities as they come along.
0: You went the meat judging took you to America. That's a familiar path for quite a few big names in the current uh, beef industry.
1: Well, um, my boss Jason Strong was my coach when I was in the Australian team, and uh, and I was a successor to him in in coaching uh, the Australian meat judging team on a few occasions. And, uh, and and there's you know there's quite a network within industry. Um, as well as our company, we we uh, recruit heavily uh, from meat judging uh, graduates. I think it's just one of those things that shows uh, the dedication and interest to the industry, and for most students, it's extracurricular. So um, not everyone enjoys getting out of bed at 3 o'clock in the morning and getting into the chillers, <laughs> but uh, that's the type of people for us.
0: Exactly. Now, a couple of your teammates here, uh, Troy Setter. CBC.
1: Yeah, Troy Setter um, uh, was, in my, was in my team, and um, he's obviously – Got an amazing career and uh, a great leader in the industry. Beck Underwood uh, is now Beck Austin was in that team as well. Michael Walker is with Powgrove. Um, Nick Davison, who's with a um, fertilizer company in in uh, Victoria. Uh, Sarah McGrath, who um, we both worked at Elders when we uh, when we first left the university. So uh, most people going through that program end up in agriculture we've certainly benefited in the meat and livestock sector.
0: Gary Edwards, uh, he went to America to judge as well. I think he might have
1: been one of the first teams that went over.
0: He just loved the experience. Now, you had a stint at Elders um, as an agronomist uh, soon after leaving university.
1: That was my first job. Um, I had a scholarship for the last couple of years with Elders and um, I I was in the Walgett branch. I spent uh, a bit of time uh, in the agronomy team and selling merchandise and... And helping our livestock team when we had our monthly sale, and um, so you became you had to be across everything. Um, I then transferred to Elders International and got into the meat uh, side. We we're processing through John D. Uh, and at Scone, and 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 feeding cattle at Kalara uh, and some other feedlots in Southern Queensland, doing branded beef products. And I, I was buying three hundred and seventy-five pigs a week. We we're doing uh, pork into Japan and. Uh, into Singapore and into the domestic market at the time as well.
0: What brought you to uh, MLA?
1: My first job with MLA was the manager of Meat Standards Australia. I'd had a lot of experience with the uh, MSA guys working commercially at Elders uh, at Blue Stripe Meats and um, I was also had my own business prior to joining MLA, uh, marketing livestock for the Ewald Beef Group and doing some contract work for brand owners at Casino. and. Um, I was really attracted to the breadth of the program. I was passionate about eating quality, uh, and really keen to get involved in the program. It was at a time of, um, uh, just getting that critical mass and we really were able to drive growth in that program. So, uh, really suited, I guess my background working across the supply chain and being able to implement that to benefit a broader, um, the broader industry was, uh, was just tremendous opportunity.
0: I recall talking to American producers and they couldn't believe we would attempt something like MSA, let alone make it a success. It was a tough battle though, through the early parts, wasn't
1: it? It takes, um, yeah, look, it, it's, it was quite a culture change to really challenge what was, you know, perceived as, you know, we had good systems, no no issue. But we were still having issues with eating quality, consistency and um, really trying to, you know, in those early days, you talked to Jason and to Phil Green who graded a lot of those cattle and 50% of strip lines were failing to meet consumer expectations for, for just a good everyday product. So we had some issues and um, and pioneers like Rod Polkenhorn and Greg Chappell and, and people who were really dedicated, uh, John Thompson, you know, really backed by science and using the consumer, were able to um, really solve a lot of those eating quality issues and we needed some pioneers and early adopters and um, and, and then we, we were able to get the, the larger processes on board and really got some momentum. And we've seen the the industry evolve as a result. Brands have, uh, have evolved and emerged and um, create a point of difference and underpin themselves with, uh, with an eating quality component that MSA provides. So it's really um, working commercially now.
0: Yeah, brands became significant too. But I suspect there was a, a lot of focus too on shelf life.
1: Shelf life has yeah. been a big step forward for us and keeps us competitive globally. Um, you know we're we're a long way from some of our key markets, but we we exceed the expectations on on shelf life. And I had a stint overseas in Europe and it's forty three days to the port of Rotterdam, and our product had one hundred and twenty days shelf life on at the time. And the importers would tell me that the worst bit of meat would always exceed that, and some of our competitors would put ninety days on it, and their best bit of meat might make that. So. It certainly sets us apart on food safety, shelf life, quality of product. It really starts to add up to, to creating a lot of value.
0: Let's take a short break now to hear a message from our podcast partner, Alenco Animal Health. Akatak Duo Duostar from Alanco provides knockdown and residual control of cattle ticks and ivermectin sensitive parasites. Applied early in the season, Akatak Duo Duostar reduces the build up of the tick population and helps to prolong the life of effective chemistry. Give ticks and worms the flick with Akatak Duo Duostar. Always read and follow the label directions and ensure good agricultural practice for optimal parasite control. Welcome back. You're back on The Grill with Kerry Lonergan and Michael Crowley from Meat and Livestock Australia. Michael, let's move on to the uh, the word of the moment, carbon, uh, with all its ramifications.
1: Yeah, How... yeah, I live my life talking about carbon <laughs> at the moment.
0: Know. How easy is it for your levy payers to access information and even advice from MLA?
1: We, we really have tried to make it easier to engage. We've got a a carbon neutral landing page. And we we keep that updated with what are the tools that are available, what are the steps that a producer needs to take. Um, And we have a baselining tool on there that we hope um, supports producers to understand their starting position. We don't need to jump to the end when we're looking at carbon in a producer business. We need to know the starting point because that will help inform producers about what decisions, what options they then might take it also, I think, also helps um, navigate a complex area where there's a lot of solutions being offered. There's a lot of people throwing money around at carbon projects. But unless you really know what your baseline is, what, how does it fit into your strategy and your business, and then what options do you need to pursue to understand the economics of um, going down that path, it's really important. So that's what we're trying to make quite accessible to producers.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there about carbon. Uh, Is this the most important problem or challenge facing the industry at present, carbon neutrality by 2030?
1: Well, I think it's one of those issues that um, we're ahead of the game on. So when we announced that we could be carbon neutral by 2030 as a red meat industry, um, so we've been investing for five years now, and the industry adopted CN30 as a target as part of our red meat industry strategic plan, red meat 2030. And now we're seeing what we predicted in that it's a global issue. We're seeing countries around the world put a line in the sand about targets, about emission reduction. Um, there's various trading schemes around the world. There's um, you know emission targets being set by 2030 and 2050 by government. And what we need to do is keep government out of our industry if we can and stay ahead of these issues. So it's really important for us. But our investments are very R and D focused at the moment because there is a lot that we don't know. So it's not one of those areas that we need to panic that we're not we don't have producers trading carbon. I mean we do, but we don't need everyone to at the moment. What we have to do is come up with the solutions that make it cheaper to measure soil carbon, cheaper to measure carbon stored above the ground, uh, the feed additives, the feed base opportunities, and genetics. That's where our investments are going. Yes. And we'll then take the industry along for the journey. So it really is a, a high, a top-level challenge as we're challenged on more sustainable production systems globally. I feel like we're ahead of the game and, and the investment that we're attracting privately that we match with federal government dollars as well as using levies is keeping us um, ahead of the game. But it's going to be a journey for sure.
0: Feed additives, gee, that's a, a all-embracing term, isn't it? Especially for... Free range, uh, free range cattle where's the research on this so far and what's what looks
1: promising there's two leading products at the moment being asparagopsis which is the seaweed product and we also uh, doing a lot of research on 3nop which is a product uh, owned by a um, dutch company dsm it'll be retailed as Bovi, but we're testing that in large scale feedlot trials at the moment we also have r&d looking at um, feed additives, for um, looking at lick blocks, uh, water treatment, uh, slow-release bolus technology, um, and, and we're hoping to also see some projects on pellets. So there'll be a range of options for extensive systems. Obviously, the feedlot sector, it's a little bit easier to implement in a, in a ration, uh, but we're also looking at extensive um, solutions because really that's where, you know, when we've got the breeder herd is probably really the focus there. Um, we also need options for um, the sheep and goat industry for, for supplementation. Uh, the cattle side's the priority at the moment, just with the I guess the proportion of you know emissions per you know per mm-hmm. animal is is higher in the beef industry, so that's why that's a that's a stronger focus for us. But there are options.
0: Well, what's what looks good at the moment, or and when can we expect to see some results uh, published, etc.
1: I I think we're probably a couple of years away um, before we see those products enter into the commercialisation phase. But while I say that, we also, um, in our partnership with CSIRO and James Cook University, have enabled, you know, we're supporting Future Feed as the commercialiser of asparagopsis and they're working on licences with various companies that are um, commercialising asparagopsis now. And, you know, DSM's a commercial company. So I think if we get those partnerships and get the, Production happening at scale here in Australia will be in, will be in pretty good shape, but you know that's that's still going to take time. But we do have those early movers um, which are promising.
0: And some innovators I've been speaking with are very keen on lick blocks and what's in particular blocks they can drop around paddocks, etc.
1: Yeah, yeah. Look, and that's that's certainly something we're partnering on and really wanting to measure. And, and that's the beauty of this is that when we actually look at these things, um, and when you look at genetics and the feed base and Feed additives. We can also measure productivity, uh, and as we become more efficient in our production system, more efficient herd and flock, more efficient kilos of production per hectare, emissions intensity per kilo goes down, and we can still deliver a positive environmental outcome. So we can actually balance uh, production and environmental outcomes, which, which I think our producers do very well on a daily basis. We'll just be now collecting a lot more information and data that supports those that um, our sustainable production system
0: technology is moving rapidly as you know uh, Michael um, you're developing now scanning ability on at all levels of interpretation from the product in in abattoirs aren't you
1: we've got about five uh, objective measurement technologies that can measure uh, quality traits that are now accredited in the OSMIC language and that's really important for us um, it'll create more transparency. In our feedback systems, creates um, more consistency in the collection of those traits, and it's allowing more data to be developed to make better decisions about then how we harvest cuts from those from those carcasses. Some of the X-ray technology is also allowing us to measure lean meat yield, uh, lean bone and fat, and and provide yield information back to producers, and equally um, improving the efficiency with how we harvest cuts from from carcasses. So it's a, it's it's moving very quickly. And there are not only processor benefits, but producer benefits too, because I think we're going to see that translate into price signals for, you know, those animals that combine quality and yield. And we're identifying those animals that can do both. So it's, uh, it's really interesting. And, and the, the focus is still on quality. I don't think we're going to compromise quality through this process. And yeah, it's, it's a, it's a really exciting one. We've made some really good progress after you know, quite an extensive time of of investment, but we've now got these um, options available that um, really help unlock value.
0: Time for a brief message from our sponsor, Kelly's Finance. Established since 1988, Kelly's Finance Group have the finance solutions when it comes to agribusiness lending from property loans and livestock funding to machinery and vehicle finance. They are the experts in arranging finance on behalf of their clients that not only ensures market-leading interest rates, but more importantly, financing that is suited to your agricultural operations, not your lender's bottom line or their preferred security position. With access to an array of specialist and traditional finance providers, there's no job too big or too small for the Kellys Finance Group team. Contact Kelly's Finance Group today for an independent and confidential discussion on how we can add value to your business moving forward. Welcome back. You're back on the grill with Kerry Lonergan and Michael Crowley from Meat and Livestock Australia. Yeah, Let's, let's talk about markets. Uh, Michael, Australia's cattle cool numbers are way down, as you know they're way down from the peak a few years back is is this supply driven or demand driven what what's the reason for this drop off in um, processing
1: oh, look um certainly we're in a big um herd rebuild phase at the moment and our annual cattle slaughter numbers are forecast just over 6 million head for the for the calendar year so that's well back on what we would consider a, a five year average closer to 8 million head so it's definitely a shortage of supply, but we're also now in a position where 90% of our beef exports are covered by free trade agreements and the sheep industry is at a similar level. So the economic barriers to trade are reducing. We're seeing incomes in Southeast Asia increasing. We're seeing a strong demand for really high quality, high value products throughout the world. Our traditional markets in Japan, Korea, the US continue to be very, um, you know, really love our product. We've seen China. Just emerged big time over the last 10 years. And, and, you know, those supply chains will continue to mature. Middle East, you know, high value products in the Middle East grows. And I, and I'm really excited about the UK deal. When that gets signed off, that's a game changer for us. So, um, significant increases in volume, reduced economic barriers to trade and, and growing global demand. Like there's some headwinds, but, um, but generally the demand outlook's very strong.
0: Average carcass weights, uh, what are they now? I know they're going up and up and up, and I've got some figures here from years gone by, but offer me the current uh, carcass, average carcass weight. Ooh, the
1: very current one, I saw something come out the other day, and it surprised me how high it was, but it was um, 300. I'm going to say around 340. It might have even been yeah. a little bit higher than that. That's about um, it. it you know, I think last year it was about 310. Yeah. It wasn't that long ago. It was mid two hundred. so... Uh, when you look at what's changed over the last few years, the proportion of our production coming out of feedlots has also increased. So I think that's having a, a bit of a flow-on effect. Yes. Um, quite, you know, about fifty percent of our production now coming out of feedlots. The feedlot sector has expanded. Um, the number of cattle on feed at any point in time has grown. So, so that's certainly having having an impact. And and I also think that we've seen a a, a little bit of a, um, you know, our, our supermarket have probably gone up in weight a bit as well and and then we, we're not seeing those certainly the grass fed over the hooks piece used to take not really have an upper limit in weight we've seen that come back a bit so there is a bit of a sweet spot I think in that sort of 280 to 340 as a quite an, quite an efficient body to process whilst also portion sizes are still manageable so so that's that's really um, an interesting evolution,
0: but nice. something that we'll keep an eye on, yeah. I've just not, uh, noted something I've written down here. Carcass weight, average carcass weight's in 2001, 232 kilos. Yeah, there you go. And I've even written one down here. Have a guess. What would you think the average carcass weight might have been in 1950? Oh, well,
1: I'm going to say 200. 171. That's there you go. Yeah, there. right. Yeah. And, and I think that's probably a reflection of just how much yeah. – Export markets have grown. They would have been, you know, solely focused on on domestic. You know, exactly. mid '80s we start yes. seeing the Japan market open up, and yeah. and then we we have the ability now serving over 100 markets. Economic barriers reducing, more efficient production systems, better genetics. Um, you know, you, you start measuring impact at a more holistic uh, level of productivity gain, and, and and that's also all coming together. So. I think producers are getting better at targeting a a market with the animals that they produce. They're still optimising production within the environment within which they operate. Yeah, it's it's, it's really interesting when you piece it all together, isn't it?
0: Tell me, uh, Michael, whether I'm right or wrong with the following statement. Because of the massive drought across America, Australian beef producers can look forward to less American meat going into the export markets, thus expanding the opportunities for our industry.
1: The, the situation in the US is really tough for them. We really feel for them. They're certainly a big competitor in the international market. They export about ten percent of their production, so they still have a, a strong domestic focus. And like us, if they're going through which they are, they're going through that big herd, that big turnoff, and and a herd retraction. They'll service their domestic market as a priority, I'm sure. So, so that will have a, have a falling effect, absolutely. Uh, they're a big volume exporter, even though it's a smaller proportion of their production. It's big, so so yes, it'll it'll have a flow effect.
0: You've mentioned the free trade agreements, and how's the FTA with the EU proceeding? I mean, you've got 300 million cashed-up producers there who eat a lot of meat, and surely we should be in there as soon as possible.
1: Look, um, and you can see how after Brexit, how much easier it was to do a deal with uh, one country who's pro-trade, a long-term trading partner, similar values, and, and, and a really good deal was done. The challenge is the other 27 member states who they have to agree with each other as well. When I was in Europe, one of my roles was market access and I was working with our ag ministerial counselor, and we had a, a company helping, helping us with all the contacts in the European Parliament. And we walked the halls and had meetings with heaps of people in there and we're at the table. It's taking a long time, but I, I think the opportunity is huge. And, and I just think that, uh, it, it should be, and it is, it's now the, the big focus for the next deal to be done. We've been at it for a while. It, 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 the, the complexity of having that many countries that need to agree as a block is, is part of the challenge and why it takes longer. And, and red meat in particular is a sensitive issue given that, um, they're big consumers, they're also big producers. But but we can position ourselves as a you know a really good global citizen and a good trading partner. I think the trade over there recognises that. Uh, the way we operate in that market is exceptional. We're very limited on quota access and out-of-duty quotas are horrendous. So it is a really important one for us and, um, yeah, really keen to, to see that one get across the line.
0: Now a couple of quick questions. The goat industry... Is this another yep. wave we're seeing at the moment? Uh, or? But I just also think that some of the big players in the beef industry are now treating the goat business very seriously.
1: Absolutely. It's a big opportunity for us. I think um, there's untapped potential. It's very small at the moment, um, and I think the industry will mature very quickly. We've also seen uh, Thomas Foods uh, um, getting the Burke abattoir going again. I think that's an indication that the numbers are rebuilding. In Western New South Wales, uh, Western Queensland and and throughout the rangeland areas. I mean, we've seen some big prices for for goats and and they're probably more on a more consistent basis for the last few years as well. And so, I think that gives a bit more confidence in producers getting really getting into more managed. Oh, there still be a, you know the, the rangelands goats are going to be better managed. I think we're going to see an expansion of our goat numbers and and the market opportunities are there. There's very little goat product available domestically. Um, that's a big opportunity, but also into export markets. And we access, you know, the US is our biggest export market, uh, for goat meat. And I just think that through Southeast Asia and the Middle East and other markets, there's, there's going to be some big opportunities. I mean, even you go through Smithfield markets in the UK and you can buy goat product there. They have burnt goat heads and all sorts of products. Yeah. I think we're going to see some, some, Pretty, a pretty bright future for the goat industry. Indeed.
0: Now, this biggest single challenge for the red meat industry in the coming
1: year or so. Uh, look, I, whilst we've got, we're not, we can't drop the ball on driving productivity, becoming carbon neutral, looking at how we drive adoption. Um, I, I we're investing big time in um, supporting Indonesia on controlling foot and mouth disease. And lumpy skin disease. I think the what we need to keep in our clear line of sight in the industry is I've, I haven't. The industry is quite organised, very organised. We're getting great support from the federal government and the states uh, to keep on top of um, emergency animal disease risk. Uh, our traceability systems need to continue to evolve, um, and preparedness should there be an outbreak is a is a high priority. So I think we will continue to drive all the productivity investments. I think the risk of emergency animal disease is at the top of the list at the moment and will remain so. Uh, We've done a great job over the years and we'll continue to keep these things out. That's the job to be done.
0: Michael Crowley runs Research and Development and Adoption for Meat and Livestock Australia. Michael, great pleasure to have you on The Grill with Beef Central.
1: Thanks for having me, Kerry. Really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. And thank
0: you for joining me today. Until next time. I'm Kerry Lonigan, and this is the Weekly Grill brought to you by Elenco Animal Health and the Kelly's Finance Group.